If you've been with us, we've been journeying through the book of 2 Samuel, and 2 Samuel is really uh, the storyline of David's reign as king over all of Israel. And last week, we got to the point that we called the crisis, the uh, the moment where a conflict and crisis where things seemed to be teetering on the edge. And of course, it was David's stunning and shocking fall from grace, his, uh, his adultery with Bathsheba, his grand attempt to cover everything up through lying and hatching plans, and then ultimately plotting the murder of one of his close friends, Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, all so that he could kind of keep his position and power. Uh, and we were forced as readers to deal with this guy who had been held up on such a pedestal and seen as kind of the person who you should be like, and then to realize that in some ways, maybe he's worse than even us, right? Now we understand that we're all equal in this reality, but we see such a tragic fall, and we have to then reckon with some of the realities of this. Well, this morning now, we get to the part of this crisis where God is going to weigh in himself. So, if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you don't have one, just feel free to listen along uh, as I read. This is what the storyteller writes. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan uh, was a prophet. And when he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. This is a crazy relationship with a little sheep, right? It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had just come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who had come to him. Now David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then, David, then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I will bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives, give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, 
he will do this thing in broad daylight before all of Israel. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, even the son born to you will die. Friends, there's no getting around this. This is hard stuff to deal with. But as we consider God's response to David's sin or David's colossal fall from grace, there's really two things that kind of describe God's response to David. And the first is truth. God responds to David in truth. There's two parts to this, right? The first is that God God knows the truth about what David did. You understand that David worked as hard as he could to make sure no one would know what he had done. His plans went all the way to murder to cover his tracks. And the first thing that God wants David to know is that I know, right? And that nothing is kept secret from God. That God is aware of all things. And even the Apostle Paul would suggest to us who are followers of Jesus that if we're joined to Jesus, that even in the actions of our sin, we cause Christ Himself to be involved in it with us. I don't say any of this to give you some Bible-thumping scare. That's not the point of it, right? My mom and dad would sometimes remind me as a little kid, God is watching, right? And there's complete truth in that. He is, but truth doesn't fully define how he responds. It is important for us to remember that whether you be in the quiet of your room or in the public place like a Wawa, right, if you are with us last week, that God is aware He fully understands the whole context of what's going on. He he sends Nathan to David to speak truth to him. Not just that he knows, but also to enlighten David with the truth about his sin. The truth about his sin. And, And how he goes about this is pretty interesting, isn't it? He tells David a story. Now, we're not told that this is a parable. Most scholars would kind of conclude that David probably thought that this happened somewhere. And Nathan was bringing it to David for David as a king and as a, someone who was you know, loftly, lofty to kind of weigh in on what should happen to this person. And just to quickly review the story, the story is there's a really poor man who all he has is his family and this little baby sheep. And this baby sheep is treasured by the family and it's considered like a daughter and they raise it and they, they feed it and they, they love it. And then there's this wealthy man who has basically everything he could ever want. And a guest comes, and hospitality in that day was of the utmost importance. So when a guest came, you would put a big meal, a big spread before them. But this rich man, rather than part with any number of things that he owned, snuck into the poor man's quarters, stole the baby lamb, killed it, and then served it to his guest. God is using a story... He's using an analogy, he's using perhaps a parable in order to cut through the callousness of David's heart so that truth can actually begin to resonate where he is. 
And what's fascinating about this story is that in doing so, he really exposes the corruption that exists in David's heart, doesn't he? I mean, David is furious about what happened to a baby lamb. Listen, I understand. Lambs are cute and they're wonderful and all these things. But but David is furious about what happens. Do you understand the punishment that David says should happen? This man should die and he should have to pay four times back what he took. I mean, this is colossal punishment. And yet, just in the recent past, what has David himself done that he seems to think there's no problem with, right? It's all in the past and covered up. He's committed adultery. He's lied. He's put all kinds of plans to cover it up. He's murdered a human being himself. And yet, there's this anger and rage, righteous anger over a lamb. And in this, we begin to see the corruption, I would suggest to you, not just of David's heart, but of our human hearts that are able to look at various situations differently, especially when they don't include us, right? We're able to say, I know right from wrong, but I can't always choose right from wrong. And this is the same thing that Paul, the apostle, talks about in Romans chapter 7, right? I know the right things to do, but I find it very difficult to make the right choices. And I know the things I shouldn't do, but I seem to always be choosing those things. It's a picture into Paul's heart. And if so, if David, this hero of the Old Testament, and Paul, this hero of the New Testament, struggle with a, a compromised and corrupt heart, then how much more people like me? And so the storyteller is beginning to show us this reality of the heart. We talked about this uh, a good bit last week, that it is the, the rebellious and prideful human heart that is the source of our sinfulness, of our choices against other humanity, against God's creation, and ultimately against God himself. And then... When Nathan, through God's leading, had cut through the callousness of David's heart, he spoke truth directly to him, right? He said, you are the man I'm talking about, David. Now, just think for a minute, if you are Nathan, right? We don't often put ourselves in Nathan's shoes. But for me, this is the, the, the job no one should want, ever, Right? Here's a guy who has taken whatever he wants. He's the most powerful person in the world. He's, he's set off a whole scheme to cover it up. And when that didn't work, he just killed a guy. And so God says, you, you, dude, I want you to go tell him how wrong he is for doing all of these things. Well, if all he's wanted to do is crush this story and kill anyone in the way, what do you think Nathan assumes his fate might be? Right? And he says to him right in the face, he looks power in the face and he speaks truth to it. Fascinating. He says, you're the man. You're the man. And David is cut to the quick. Friends, I would suggest to you, there are many ways that God speaks to us, but one of the chief ways that God speaks to us is through His Word, the Bible, the Scriptures. And the Scriptures are God's God's divine story of creation and fall and covenant and, and Jesus' ultimate rescue that leads to the gathering of the people of God. It's this grand story that is meant to cut through the callousness of our human hearts and at times speak truth directly to us. This is what it says about the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that they are sharper than any double-edged sword. 
able to cut straight through bone and marrow and expose us for who we are. Sometimes the point of reading the Bible and being intent on engaging in the full story of God is not just for academic theology learning. It's to completely be immersed in God's story so that we can hear His voice even when it is painful to hear. Because the truth of the matter, church, is that as much as God's response to David is about truth, it is far more about grace. Think about this for a minute. You might think, well, grace doesn't fit into this story, Adam. I know you try to fit it into every other Bible story you ever talk about, but how does it fit into this story? And I would suggest to you, God is who God is. It fits into this story, too. Think about it for a minute. The first way we see grace is that God sends Nathan at all, right? If you were God, and this is what the king who you had set up had done, what would you do to him, right? Here's what I would do. I'd snap my fingers, and he would disappear, and I'd start over. That God would come near to David in the midst of colossal failure. And oh, by the way, the appearance of no intent to even feel bad about what he did speaks to the heart of God for David. All through chapter 11, it is all about what David sends for. And now to start off chapter 12, it is what God sends to David. That God is now active And God is coming near. You might say, well, he's coming near to judge him. And I would suggest to you, no, I don't think that's exactly what's going on. You know, all too often, judgment has to do with God removing himself from a situation. When God comes near in a situation, almost always it's about grace and about attempting for redemption and and restoration. Now, we'll talk in a minute. That doesn't mean that consequences go away. But it does mean that God is seeking the restoration. Think all the way in the beginning of the story of God. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sin, what does God do, right? I mean, it was just the beginning of the story. If you're ever going to start over, start over then. I like to play this game on the computer. It's really old. It's called Civilization. And you, you start this game, and it puts you in a place somewhere in the world. Then you have to build a civilization and basically dominate the world. You, you know who I am, right? So you know I like this. Because I can actually attempt to do this, knowing I'll never accomplish it in real life. Um, but sometimes they put me on an island, right? I, we don't have any boats. I don't have any of these other things. You know what I do? Just let you in on my little secret. I restart. Because I don't want to start there. Start the game all over. I want to be on a big landmass where I can do all these different things. In the Garden of Eden, God should have pushed restart, right? Adam and Eve, they screwed up. Okay, let's start this whole thing again, right? We don't need to be on an island in Civilization three, right? But no, God comes near, and in it we see something about who God is. And what does he say? He says, why have you covered yourself? He wants to get to the heart. He wants to understand what's going on here. He wants to know why this has happened, and he wants to fix it. Remember that God, even in declaring there's consequence for his sin, what does he do? He provides covering for those people who had just stuck their nose up at him. And here again, in God coming near to David, we're about to see something unfold that I would suggest to you is miraculous grace. God comes near even in the midst of colossal failure. Now, if you are looking for hope in this life and can't find hope in that truth, then there might be no hope for you. And the second way we see grace, and this might seem just 
counterintuitive to you, is that God speaks truth to David, right? And I would suggest to you that's incredibly gracious of God. Because God could just come to David and say, you know what you did, I know what you did, we're done here. But instead, God begins to, to, through process of telling story and cutting open David's heart and getting to the core emotion of David and speaking directly to him, he begins to, what I would suggest to you, graciously institute a process of repentance in David's heart. Listen, without conviction or correction, there is no chance for repentance. We don't like to be told we've done something wrong. But what if you are so hard in your heart that you keep moving on, never coming to the realization of just how wrong you've been? How gracious of God, rather than coming and giving him a swift kick right in the middle, to say, look at what you've done, David. And you've broken my heart. And how could you do this? I've given you everything you need. And you know me. I would have given you even more. Sometimes we misunderstand grace, church. Sometimes we think that grace is divine niceness. That is not grace, right? Grace isn't some... uh, I hope this is not stereotypical. That means this is probably stereotypical. And I apologize in advance, right? When I think of divine niceness, I think of like a grandma in the south somewhere who's like, oh, sweetie, don't you worry about that. Just come on in and let's feed you, right? So stereotypical, I know. Make her a northeastern mom and says, you know, get in here, whatever. Like, this is not how, grace is not God coming and saying, oh, David, look, you did all this stuff. Who cares? Let's come on in. It's all, it's fine. That's not grace. That's actually divine omission. It's actually God not being who God actually is. Grace is actually far greater than that response because it's willing and loving enough to take David through a whole process of restoration. The same way grace is not some kind of constant deletion of sins. Sometimes we think that's, that's what grace is, right? In middle school, I took a class called Keyboarding One. Right? You know what this was? It was typewriters. And uh, we were taught by a, a teacher named uh, Miss Battistini, and she was just like she sounded. And the other crazy thing about Miss Battistini was she had long, fake fingernails, like long, fake fingernails. Like she could type on the typewriter in the front row from here, right? <laughs> And the classroom was set up. She would sit at her desk. She, I never saw her move from her desk, ever. I promise you. She was there before class started, and she was there after, and I never saw her from her desk. And then behind her desk were a whole row of, like, a classroom. And then behind all the desks where the kids were supposed to sit were all the typewriters. But no one ever used the desk because it was typing class. Uh, now, here's the problem. In typing class, we had the new and exciting typewriters with the erasure key, right? And so this is what would happen all the time, right? Click, 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 click. Right, then that, that's my attempt to make the sound of the eraser key. And it used to be like, type, 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 eraser key, type, 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 eraser key. And Mrs. Battistini would always be like, I hear that eraser key. But she would never get out from her desk and she would never do anything about it. And so all we ever did was get 100 on our typing because we erased every mistake we ever made, right? This is not grace, right? Sometimes we think about God in this way. He's just overlooking, he's just doing this. Or sometimes, even worse, we think of God's grace as pretending that sin never even happened. We'll just pretend like it never happened, and we'll go on. All three of these are adulterations of grace, friends. 
They're, they're examples of divine omission, of a God who doesn't care, and a God who's not able to make right what humanity has made wrong. Grace is far greater than that. And so when God comes and speaks truth to David and says, you have broken my heart, you have despised me by what you've done, this is hard for us to hear But the truth is, there's no chance for restoration for David unless David's eyes and heart are opened up to what he has truly done. Nothing could be more gracious than a God who cares enough to enlighten us to the corruption of our own heart. It's the only way that the process of restoration and repentance can start. And then we get to the the incredibly miraculous part of grace. David says, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan says, it's okay. You're not going to die. Now David has just said the person should die and he should have to pay back four times what he took. And Nathan said, okay, and you're that guy. But now Nathan says, well, it's okay. Your, Your sin has been forgiven and you're not going to die. Now, you're going to say to me, because you're thinking logically, and I like that in an audience, you're going to say to me, well, you just said that grace isn't just about deleting sins, and now all of a sudden, God's deleting sins. No, forgiveness is actually far greater than a simple erasure of sin. It's the continual, divine, gracious act of not holding us guilty for our actions. You see that? It doesn't mean we never did it. It means that God has eternally promised to withhold the guilt from us for it. You see that? All through the Old Testament and the New Testament, God's intention through the sacrificial system and ultimately through Christ, uh, the, the, the process of dealing with sin has never been to erase it. It has always been to cover it, right? It has always been to cleanse it. So he says in the Psalms that my sin was made me as red as scarlet, now it's white as snow, right? Whether my sin you know, was once as close to me, but now it is as far away from me as the east is from the west. It's not that it's vanished, it's that the guilt is taken far away from me. And so when Paul says in Romans that we have been justified by grace through faith, what he's saying is there's a court decision about us that we have been declared not innocent, but we have been declared not guilty. Do you see the difference? That in Christ there is this new identity. That that in relationship with God there is this new identity. That that through the forgiveness that God offers by the miraculous nature of His grace, we are not identified, labeled, described by our sin, even though it continues to hamper, haunt, and, and, and in some ways dominate us. God moves in miraculous ways to forgive David of his sins. Can I tell you something about grace, church? It is always meant to provoke us to life change. Grace is always meant to provoke us to life change. So when God graciously comes near, He wants us to be His children. And when God graciously speaks truth to us about our missteps, He wants us to be His new, the new kind of people that He's calling us to be, to honor Him and, and, to, and to live His kind of way. And even when He forgives us in miraculous ways through grace, He's wanting that to be 
a, a, a provoking, a, a moving forward, a catalyst towards a new kind of life. Paul says, listen, so you've been forgiven of sin. Does that mean you should just keep sinning so that grace can, can, can move forward all the more? If I sin more, there's more and more grace. And Paul says, may genoito, the Greek strong word, may it never be that I live that way. Why? Because grace is meant to stir in us a deeper and deeper affection for God that makes our heart more and more like His and joined to His, which is the only way that we become the kind of people that He wants us to be. You see it? This is grace. And so now David has the opportunity to respond to God's grace. And David's response is actually pretty brief. And we know in Psalm 51, there's a longer psalm of repentance, and we get a little bit more of what's going on. But for the storyteller, he wants us to see that David's response to God is actually pretty short and sweet. But even in being short and sweet, he covers, in essence, all the basis. He says, I have sinned against Yahweh. That's it. That's all David says, right? We got the story about the lamb. We got David's, David's righteous anger about the guy who took the lamb. We've got Nathan saying, that's you. And look what you've done, all these things. We, we would expect at this moment to have some grand religious performance from David to get back in God's good graces, right? Some massive system of sacrifices, some giving of half of his things back to God. And yet all we have is him saying, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan's response is, it's all right, you're forgiven. You will not die. And in that, we see two really important things about our response to God's gracious correction in our life. The first is that we have a realization of the true nature of sin, right? It's a realization for David of the true nature of sin. This is the point where he realizes that his heart is deeply broken, This is the point where he agrees with the prophet Jeremiah that the heart is deceitful and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the point where he begins to think through what he'll pen later in Psalm 51, that I need God to create in me a new and clean heart. That I've got a problem here. See, he realizes maybe for the first time that he wasn't just a jerk to Bathsheba. He wasn't just an incredibly bad friend to Uriah. And he wasn't just a colossal liar to cover everything up. But at the core of sin, in so much as it is directed and affects other people, at the core of sin, it is against God himself. Now, that might be hard to swallow, but let's just listen to what Nathan says to David. He says, God says this to you, Why did you despise my word? And then a couple of verses later, he says, and why did you despise me? Because in our acts of rebellion, even though they are often directed at and deeply affect other people, they begin with us deciding against God's way of living and choosing a rebellious way. And God equates that with not just choosing against him, but actually despising him. If you're a parent, you might know how this goes. Or if you're a person and had parents, you might know how this goes, right? Because parents make rules for kids. And oftentimes kids think, these rules are too constraining for me as a child because I need to live my life how I want to live my life. And parents usually will say, and hopefully always are truthful in saying, 
I've put these things in here because I love you. And I want to protect you and I want to keep you and help you move in the path that is the right way. And so then as a parent, when you see a child deliberately choose against the the, the path that you've set before them, the boundaries that you've placed around them, it cuts you deep in your heart, doesn't it? Maybe you're like way better than me as a parent. But it cuts me deep in my heart because it's not just choosing a different way. It's actually choosing against the way that I told them was the best way. And in the same way, we've got to understand that when we choose a life or a choice or a behavior, an attitude, a reaction outside of the way that God has asked us to live, we're actually choosing against God himself. Now we begin to see just how miraculous his gracious forgiveness is. Amazing. There's a composer named Joseph Hayden. Have you ever heard of him? He's a fantastic composer and and just just prestigious and, and... Composed all these wonderful pieces. He was married to a woman, and they had a just a not good marriage. Matter of fact, historians write that within the first six months of marriage, they both realized they didn't like each other, and they probably should have never been married. Uh, if you're thinking about getting married, let me recommend pre-marriage counseling to you. <laughs> Joseph Hayden, right, did all these things. So you know what his wife is, is most famous for in, in anecdotes of history? She would take his compositions, and she would tear them up, And she would use them as pastry liners or as hair curlers. Joseph Hayden, right? This is not my musical compositions. Now, does she do this because she thought he was not a good good musician? Yeah, she thought his music was terrible. But why did she think his music was terrible? Because she thought he was terrible. And so she did it. And God is saying, when we choose outside of what he he has set before us, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're taking... His perfect law, and we're making it into pastry liners and hair curlers. And, and alongside of that, David also, in realizing the true nature of sin, realizes that the choice for sin actually unleashes all kinds of evil in our lives. It actually unleashes all kinds of evil in our lives. The, 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 the choice towards sin actually steps outside the protection of God in some way. You know, it's that part of your body that you forget to put sunblock on in the, the heat of July and you're burned in a strange way on your leg, you know, or something like that. You step outside of the protection of God in your rebellious action towards sin and though there can be forgiveness, there can be the removal of guilt in our sin, there also exist consequences for what we've done, right? There exist consequences in our life for what we've done. Uh, one week after I got my driver's license, I was pulled over for speeding. Shocking, right? Can't believe it ever happened. Pulled over for speeding. <laughs> and, um, you know, obviously speeding, however you want to relate it, there's laws. God puts the government into effect, sets laws. Laws shouldn't be broken. To, for me, to speed was not only sinning against, the, the, against God by breaking the government's rules, but my parents have been pretty sincere in their admonition to me about how I should drive. So, God, through his miraculous nature, and this might seem small potatoes to you, but forgives me for that. My parents were gracious in forgiving me for that. You know who wasn't gracious in forgiving me for that? The local magistrate had no forgiveness for me for that, right? And so my first two paychecks at the shoe store where I sold shoes went to pay off my ticket. 
And I tell that story for to make the point, right? That even in God's forgiveness of our sin, there still can exist consequences because of it. And God is telling David, look, at you've unleashed all kinds of evil through this choice. Your household, in your life, in the lives of others, and that's the second part, right? Not just for us, but our sin unleashes all kinds of evil on other people. Directly, I mean directly affected Bathsheba and Uriah, but then also indirectly. There's going to be generations, and we'll see it with every king that comes after David, who kind of starts to be more and more like David. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And the Bible constantly reminds us that our sin is passed down generationally. How exactly that happens through osmosis, through genetics, through seeing it constantly, it does and it happens and we'll see it in David's life. And God kind of says that's how it's going to go. In the same way, sin unleashes evil because it gives opportunity for the devil in our lives. Remember that verse in Ephesians chapter 4? where it says, hey, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And I always thought, man, that's harsh. Like, come on. Just let me be angry for a little while, right? Let me process this. It's this weird thing after, because if you don't, then you're going to give the devil a foothold. Really? Because I'm angry? Well, that's the whole point of sin. When you step outside of God's protection, when you choose another way, when you're rebellious, it opens opportunity for the devil to seize on that and to expand it, to take territory in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, in your flesh. You know how you know if you have an ant problem in your house? You leave some crumbs somewhere. And then you come down and you can't even see the crumbs because there's ants all over it, right? And sometimes when we sin, we realize we've got a, an ant problem. The devil is all over it and taking new ground. The word for foothold actually means a space. Don't give him any opportunity. But David's response is not just realizing the full nature of sin. It's also repentance. I've sinned who? I've sinned against who? Against Yahweh. His repentance is directed towards God. It is not couched in himself. It's understanding that his sin is against God and it's asking God, we'll find out in Psalm 51, like we said earlier, for a new heart, a clean heart, a new existence, a heart that is not guilty in the same way that he stands guilty in the moment. All too often, repentance in its religious sense is an awful lot consumed with us, isn't it? God, I know what I did. You're right. I shouldn't have done that. Here's what I'm going to do to make it up. Right, you ever do that? Or maybe an even more religious response to God correcting us graciously of sin. It's not about what I'm going to do to make it up. It's about the great religious ceremony I'm going to perform to make the sin go away, right? I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, going to you know, kind of be overcome by my sin. I'm going to, I'm going to be, do as much penance as I possibly can. I mean, Martin Luther scrubbed floors until his knees bled and then realized it's not about penance, it's about grace. We see it in the same way that Jesus speaks about how the tax collector prays instead of the Pharisee. The Pharisee goes through this giant religious ceremony and basically showing how religious he is and therefore how worthy he is of access to God. And the Pharisee, or excuse me, the tax collector says, God have mercy on me. I am sinner. 
So in David's repentance, we see that the short and sweet is sufficient. The submission to God as God and acknowledgement of our sin against Him and a willingness to see His gracious reconciliation take place. Now all of this really leaves us in this storyline at a giant crisis. We talked about this last week. How does the story even move forward with a king who has done this kind of thing? And God has forgiven him, but he's also said, like, sin is it's unleashed here. Well, at the very end of chapter 12, or a couple of verses towards the very end, there's this interesting story. And it, it's weird that it's in there, right? The, the, the baby that, uh, that, that David and Bathsheba had conceived dies as a result of the sin that's going on. It's very difficult for us to understand what is happening here. And then it says that after that, uh, David laid with Bathsheba again, and she was pregnant and gave birth to a son, and his name was Solomon. It says, listen to this, and God loved him. And we might think, well, that's an interesting anecdote. Now we know how Solomon came. But the truth is that this is just like the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve are divinely and graciously corrected because of their sin. There's consequence because of their sin. They're outside the garden now. But the woman gives birth. There's this new vindication that's happening. There's this new possibility that, that through the offspring, through the child, God continues. There's, the, the, the story is going on, that it moves forward. And now we have the same thing here. And I would suggest to you two kinds of hope, right? There's hope for Bathsheba, who was the victim of sin. And now she's vindicated by God, right? Here we see her again. Basically, God saying, your life was ruined because of this. You're vindicated. And therefore, it should be no surprise to us when in the Gospels, as the writers want to reveal where Jesus came from, whose name shows up in the genealogy? Bathsheba. Fascinating. But then also hope for the kingdom of God and for people like us. That there is a new king. Now God changes his name from Solomon to Jedediah. I have no idea what's going on here. You know how crazy grace must be if it ends up with a God naming a kid Jedediah, right? But this is what happens. Jedediah actually means God's beloved. God has given this child a new name. We've talked about this before. There's a new start and a fresh hope that's coming. And Solomon is going to be the king who finally does build God a house that David never could. And it's the son of David that is going to be the actual person of hope for the world. And friends, there is eventually a son of David who comes on the scene. And his name is Jesus. And is Jesus once and for all on a cross who deals with our sin and our rebellion. The judgment falls on him instead of us because sin is not just erased. It is moved on to him instead of us. And through his work on the cross, through the blood that pours from him, we can, as the psalmist would say, be washed white as snow. And then through his resurrection, be brought into this whole new hope of a son who is called the beloved of God. This is grace. This is miraculous grace. 
for people like us who maybe don't fall as big as David, but we have our moments in a regional Philadelphia-based convenience store, right? Or wherever it might be for you. To be able to say, I am broken. If left to my own devices, I'm in trouble. I'm not sure what kind of future there is for someone like me. But for a God who comes near in those moments and who says, you know what? Screwed up in Wawa, Adam. Big time. Or for you, you know, you, you messed up here. It's true. It's, it, it's hard. It's painful. But I want you to know that that doesn't mean it's the end of your story. Because I have done something new through Jesus. My son, the beloved one, Call him Jesus, call him the next Jedediah, if you please. Has started a whole new hope and offers a whole new name for anyone who would be joined to him. The story does not end in chapter 12. It moves forward. And so too for people like you and me who are in desperate need of hope. Can I pray with you?